Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Bone Up. We are live here at the Manchester Business School in the UK where we're attending the Bone Research Society conference. And we're hoping to bring you an update on all the latest research that's going on around Bone by interviewing the speakers that are presenting their papers at the conference. There's lots of PhD students, there's lots of postdocs, there's lots of really senior academics and big professors, so hopefully we'll be able to give you a really good insight into everything that's going on. It's still all about the calcified collagen. Welcome to Bone Up Live. So we're joined now by Professor Eugene McCluskey from the University of Sheffield. Eugene, uh, great to see you again. You have appeared on the podcast before. I have, and it was a pleasure. And uh, uh, keeping up with the uh, new podcast, it's going really well, isn't it? Thank you very much. Um, so what, what are your highlights from the conference so far? What are you looking forward to here in Manchester? Uh, well, I think the, this is my first face-to-face meeting in two and a half years. Uh, so the, the best bit was just walking in. Uh, and seeing people gathered in the same room from different institutions, different backgrounds, and actually coming together to discuss science. And the, the nice thing about the BRS is it, it bridges you know, basic science right through to some uh, clinical uh, medicine. So it's a, it's a great combination. I feel that BRS is really a coming together of friends. You can see that a lot of people have known each other for many years. I guess there's a lot of professors here who were PhD students and postdocs together it's a really wonderful atmosphere yeah I think that was uh, that's always been the way uh, I mean going back to the old bone and tooth society before it became the, the bone research society um, and it, it is a community that has grown together grown older together for many of us um, but it's nice to see so many young people uh, here today as well and uh, thinking that you know in 30 years time they'll be uh, uh, supervising everything that's going on and uh, giving uh, plenary uh, talks and so on you're speaking at the debate later on today. Do you want to give us just a little insight into what that's about? Well, I'm speaking in the, deb- the debate. I'm uh, uh, debating against uh, Debbie Mason from uh, Cardiff. And uh, the topic is that uh, animal models are an accurate model for the study of human bone diseases. Um, it's one of those topics that um, I said yes to about three years ago. And then <laughs> as it got closer to it, I thought, why did I say yes? Uh, but it's been really interesting just to, as a clinician to get into the, the depth of animal models and uh, uh, see some of the background and uh, some of the, just the basic characteristics of the models, uh, which is something that whenever we, I think as clinicians, we always look at the message that comes out of animal studies, so that molecule seems really important and targeting that molecule may change the process in that way. But just knowing what those studies have been uh, superimposed on the background of the model itself and some of the, the good points about those models and some of the limitations of those models. It's, it's been quite fun. It'll be a terrible debate, but it'll, it was quite fun doing the background work. I'm sure it'll be a brilliant debate. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Now we're here with Professor Tim Coots from Manchester University. Welcome to Bone Up. It's great to be here. I thought you gave a really fascinating talk today about how to use artificial intelligence for studying bone aging and disease. Could you explain for our listeners at home what artificial intelligence is? 
Well, artificial intelligence, or, or machine learning as it's sometimes also called, is a way of training a computer to replicate some of the things that uh, humans do. Uh, one example of that is that um, humans are very good at spotting signs of disease on images. Um, we can train computers to do something similar, but we have to, by the way that we do it, is we show the computer lots of examples of the images, and we tell it which ones have the signs of disease on it. If you give it enough examples, possibly even thousands of examples, it can then learn what it is in the image which allow that, that is associated with the disease, so that once you've got the system trained, you can feed it a new image, and then it can come up and say, yes, that's diseased, or no, it isn't. And what kind of images do you use? Uh, we work with a wide range of medical images. So we work with uh, plain x-rays, so radiographs. Uh, we also work with low, de low um, energy x-rays like uh, DXA images, uh, MR images, and CT images. So CT being 3D x-rays, essentially. Some of the images you showed today were of the hip and of the vertebra, and certainly in the osteoporosis world, we're very interested in fractures in those areas. We know about bone mineral density, we know a little about bone quality. Do you think the shape of bones has an influence on fracture risk as well? We do. A lot of our work is on analysing the shape of bones. Um, we're particularly interested in looking at populations and finding out uh, what's the average shape of a bone across a population and how does it vary. Uh, and it turns out that you can use statistical techniques and find that you can encode the differences between different people in, in a fairly small number of numbers, which makes it easy to do analysis. Um, and so there is work now going on looking at changes in shape and trying to link them to things like genetic information, but also risk. And a potential maybe even to include uh, some measure of shape into risk calculators like FRACs in future? Uh, potentially, yes, if uh, we can get a strong enough relationship. That's fascinating. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us, and uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you. So we're here now, live at the BRS, with our first ever guest, Roland Chapelet. How are you doing? Very well. I really enjoyed your talk yesterday about pain in fibrodysplasia. So, um, yes, pain is, is one of the most um, important problems in this disease. A number of, that, that's um, quite uh, curious because many patients, in particular the children, don't have pain, and often the, the pain appears in adults and it can be excruciating and extremely uh, disabling. Um, we, we don't know really why uh, these patients have pain, but um, clearly, so, so anyway, this is uh, one of our main goals I in the treatment uh, so far. There probably will be people listening who aren't familiar with fibrodysplasia. <coughs> Could you explain, even in, in just a few words for our, yes. our audience, exactly what the condition so entails? So yes, so this is a congenital disease, and uh, uh, quite quite rare. In my country, there are probably 2,500 patients, approximately, and um, and so it's characterized by uh, a single bone lesion, or sometimes, in a third of cases, uh, several bone lesions, uh, leading to a sort of an expansion of the bone that becomes fragile and fracture, and it can also be painful. Um, independently of, of, of the fracture. Uh, and, and a limited number of patients may also have endocrine problems, like precocious puberty or uh, excess production of gross hormone, for example, or hyperthyroidism. 
So it's a condition in which you produce extra bone, but that bone is fragile or abnormal. It's like Paget's disease in that sense, or how does it differ I from Paget's disease? I wouldn't say that's extra bone. Uh, actually, there's a destruction of bone and, uh, and production of an abnormal fibrous tissue uh, replacing the normal bone, and uh, that's poorly mineralized, so very fragile. What causes the disease, do you know? So, so it's, it's a genetic disease. Uh, the mutation occurs uh, in the embryo, um, so it's not uh, er heritable. Uh, it's what we call a somatic mutation and uh, causing a mosaicism. So you have a majority of normal bone cells and a minority of these uh, mutated cells. Um, um, and is the aim of your research to try and find some uh, bone medication that might ease the pain for the patients? So we've been using bisphosphonate, so the most classical uh, bone drug, for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, with very good results in three quarters of patients, I would say. And so, but in a, in a subset of the patients, uh, we are still looking for better options. We've done the trial with tocilizumab, which is a bit disappointing, and there are studies ongoing using another bone drug, which is uh, denosumab, and we are also working on uh, more innovative approaches uh, to try to directly target the mutated genes to uh, repress it, its action uh, using non-coding RNAs um, wow. to try to not only uh, treat the symptoms but also the disease itself. That would be exciting as a somatic mutation that I suppose the earlier it's picked up you could actually then use essentially gene therapy to correct the, the disease. That is, that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And well, this is not exactly gene therapy, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, something that's probably easier to develop, like non-coding RNAs and inhibitors, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. So I'm Zulf Mughal. I'm a consultant in pediatric bone disease based at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. And uh, my association with BRS goes um, back to Bone and Tooth uh, Society, which was the precursor yeah. of uh, this uh, wow. very important society. And uh, when I started looking at children's bone health, um, it was a very lonely uh, time for me because at that time uh, there were very few uh, pediatricians uh, looking at um, bones and uh, the only colleagues who were really serious about this were my adult colleagues and basic science colleagues in, in the UK. And therefore, it was very important to go to these meetings. And, um, and, and, and I actually got some very interesting ideas. To give you one example, um, in um, uh, one of these meetings, I actually um, met uh, uh, somebody from Sheffield Hallam University who was doing ultrasound work. Um, and uh, so we then set up a collaboration and developed um, um, ultrasound as a way of uh, looking at um, bone health in children. We did normative studies. So I think it, uh, this for me is a um, very important UK-based meeting where there is an opportunity of clinicians coming in contact with um, basic scientists, which in the example that I've given sort of um, led to sort of very interesting two to three year collaboration. And this is where I was also introduced to our future president who said, Kate Ward, who actually came to me as a student from uh, Sheffield Hallam University, and 
I think I've had a very small part, but then, you know, she prospered uh, in, in, in the bond field in Manchester and then subsequently in Cambridge and, uh, and now throughout the world. So uh, I think it's a very important meeting. I get a lot out of it, and I think the best um, thing that I get out of this is um, interaction with um, non-clinical colleagues who are doing some uh, important work in bone health. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Zulf. Next up on Bone Up Live at BRS, we have Jared Wong. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Richie. I saw your talk yesterday on uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and I have a young son, and it, it, uh, it really rang with me. I thought it was a wonderful, moving talk that you gave about the disease. I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the disease. Uh, so Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a rare muscle condition. It is an inherited condition in the dystrophin gene, which is a gene that helps stabilizes muscles. It's in fact a shock absorber for muscles. Mm-hmm. Now we know that muscles are very important for bone development, particularly during childhood. And any child with poor muscle function will have poor bone health. But in these boys, the use of long-term daily steroids is used as standards of care to try to slow down the muscle deterioration. And most of you would probably know that steroids do a lot for bones and growth, and hence osteoporosis is very common in this group of boys. At what age does the disease appear? So effectively, these boys are born with the condition. Uh, Unfortunately, it's still picked up approximately between the age of four to seven years of age, Uh, but some could be diagnosed younger. So if they're suffering from this disease very young, I guess it's going to affect them for their whole lives. Do you have any treatments that you can give the patients for their bone? Uh, So in terms of the bones, uh, the current standards of care is introducing bisphosphonates or drugs that slows down the breakdown of bones. Once we've identified fractures and there's now building evidence that it is effective even in boys with Duchenne. I see mainly adult patients with osteoporosis. I'm seeing more patients with rare diseases and with with inborn errors of metabolism who do live into adult life and have problems with osteoporosis and more and more being asked difficult questions about how to treat people people clinically. It's something I'm sure we would be more aware of in adults now as, as Duchenne's patients are also surviving well into adult life. Yes, certainly. I think, um, you know, with the increasing number of rare conditions where either... Uh, a curative therapy exists or in fact a better care means that they live longer uh, the um, complications like bone health and osteoporosis uh, is common and managing uh, these patients are challenging and I think uh, one needs to learn to ha- uh, to engage with other specialists who might have the interest in rare conditions but importantly I think it's also very important to engage with the patients and actually ask them what their wishes are because we're working in an area where they're not going to be large-scale clinical trials to guide our management but I think listening to the patient's voice is extremely important. Thank you. Thank you. We're gonna to have to get you on for a full episode I think, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> we're here Bone Up Live again. Welcome. We've had Nicola Crabtree with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I saw your talk yesterday about Duchenne muscular dystrophy after Jared's, and I was really moved by your talk. I was really surprised to hear that one in 3,500 bo- boys have the disease. That seems like an incredibly high number. 
Um, well, I, I think it is a relatively high number, and of course, it's you know it's a life-limiting disease. So, um, to to have that number of children with the condition at any one time um, is quite sig significant. I suspect everybody um, probably knows somebody uh, that that has the condition. Working with the condition, you feel like every boy has it, and you're always looking out for those uh, signs and symptoms. But um, yeah, it is, a, it's a, it, it is the most common of the muscular dystrophies. There are some others that are much rarer, such as spinal muscular atrophy, but DMD is the most common in boys. What are the signs and symptoms? Uh, so the, the first obvious sign is um, uh, the Gower's sign, so being able to get up from the floor. Um, if, you are, if you get a child just to stand up, they'll, just, they'll get themselves up from the floor. But a boy with DMD, he hasn't got the um, quadra strength, uh, uh, the, the strength in his quad muscles, so he'll push himself up from the floor with what's called the classic Gower's sign, using his hands on his thighs to help push him up. Um, it, yeah. It looks very different. And, and also, they're not, not running as fast as their peers. They might, you might see a three-year-old running up the stairs while a boy with DMD is likely to hold on to the stairs and, and walk up the stairs. They're usually unable to jump by the time they're five or six and, and hop because they just don't have that muscle strength. And without the, um, without the use of corticosteroids to maintain and improve their muscle strength, of course, they deteriorate very quickly and will, uh, without steroids are likely to be in a wheelchair by, their, um, by the time they're 9 or 10. And the obvious question from that is then that how much does the steroid contribute to the osteoporosis we see and how much does the lack of physical activity contribute to the osteoporosis? <coughs> so that's a very good question. So if you, um, if you DEXA scan a boy, and we usually start DEXA scanning at about age five, you will see that their lumbar spine bone density is really relatively normal. So they've just started their um, steroids usually at that stage. Um, but if you look at their whole body, so you look it more a representation of their long bones, you'll you often see that that's already reduced. You know, this is a disease that they have from birth. It may not be picked up until they're three or four years old, but they've had a lack of loading from their muscles. So you see a reduction in their bone size, um, in their long bones, particularly in their, uh, in their tibias and their fibias, um, and you don't really see the effect of um, osteoporosis in the axial body, so in the, in the spine, and that's really where you see the detrimental effect, detrimental effect of, um, of steroids on the bone. So it's on the long bones you see the early signs of osteoporosis. If they had a simple x-ray, you'd see these thin gray cell bones with tiny thin cortices. Um, because even though they may be standing and loading their bones, their muscles are not putting on uh, the, the average load that a, a normal healthy child would have. So you see those reductions relatively early on. You mentioned in your talk yesterday that some of the boys go on to suffer catastrophic vertebral fractures where several vertebrae break in one go during a fall. You looked in your research into the risk factors behind those vertebral fractures. And what did you find? So the most significant risk factor for the, ca for the catastrophic vertebral fracture was daily steroids. Um, so boys with DMD can go on several different steroid regimes, either daily or a 10 days on, a 10 days off regime, or an alternate day or a high weekend dose regime. The one that has the most beneficial effect on the muscle is the daily steroids. But sadly, it's the one that has the most detrimental effect on the skeleton because it's just really a cumulative dose effectively that we're seeing. Um, also, the daily doses, um, it's really
really dramatically slows down their growth. And so we see this effect on re remarked um, reduction in stature and effect on puberty. So the risk factors for the catastrophic factor really are daily steroids, um, delayed puberty brought on by the high dose steroids. Um, and then they, they present uh, with back pain. So when, the <clears throat> when a boy with DMD um, complains of back pain, you have to try and identify what's causing that back pain. They walk, while they're still walking, they tend to walk with a, um, a large lordosis. They work, walk on their tiptoes, so they very often have pain around the lumbar region. But when they have a vertebral fracture, that pain can be sudden onset. So they, they're used to a chronic pain and so it's the sudden onset of pain often um, when they're losing mobility and then they fall and if they after the result of that fall and they start complaining of pain then that can be an indication of their severe vertebral fractures. And do the patients tolerate bisphosphonates well or are there concerns that they may not tolerate them as well as others? So there's a, there's a growing body of evidence to say that the first phase reaction in boys with DMD yeah. is significant. And because these boys are on steroids, you have to be, it's not really my area of expertise, but you have to be prepared for adrenal crisis. So you have to sort of be there with the rescue steroids. Um, so they, what we tend to do with DMD boys is give them a half dose. So rather than the full dose to start with, they have a half dose. And then in some centers at three months rather than six months, they'll do another half a dose. So kind of trying to stagger it. But we warn the parents that this is mm. going to happen. They tolerate the infusions usually. They can be a difficult group to cannulate. Um, and of course, as with everything with DMD, they have a lot of hostel appointments. So, you know, actually whether they want to come in and have these extra treatments. Um, there's certainly been a bit of resistance through COVID because of concerns with reduced immunity, because of the steroid exposure, whether they actually want to come into the hospital, how well they would cope with COVID, because obviously they have, a, you know, the, the muscular dystrophy affects their lungs. So uh, there's no proven evidence that they're a group that's more at risk, but they're certainly a, a, a worried group. And we've certainly had trouble trying to bring them in for their infusions. So our role for denosumab? Potentially, given that we know it kind of potentially beneficial effects on muscles as well as bones. Absolutely. So, um, just recently at the uh, the, re the recent ICCBH meeting over in Dublin, Leanne Ward, um, who's done a, a massive amount of work um, looking at boys with DMD, she's also got done a small trial, not at RCT, but a small trial looking at denosumab, and it seems to be a um, successful alternative. Um, and they, because boys with DMD have a very low uh, bone over turnover with their bone, the, the, the worry about the rebound hypercalcemia seems to be less of an issue, but it's still very early days. Um, we did have a clinical trial, but um, it's very difficult to recruit boys with DMD into a clinical trial in bone because bone is not their biggest worry. They have other worries. And so if they don't want to take part in a study, a drug trial that's going not, to not allow them to take in one that might be related to a cure. So we struggle with that a little bit. Nicola, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Very interesting. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Next on Bone Up Live at BRS, we have Tim Dreyer from the Royal Veterinary College in London. Welcome. Thank you. And you gave a really wonderful talk today. I think the audience really enjoyed it. You got a big round of applause at the end about the disease sclerosteosis. Could you tell us something about it? Yeah, so... Um, Sclerosteosis is, is, uh, is quite a rare disease. We call it ultra rare. Um, so it's about 
a hundred, just over a hundred documented cases by now uh, since they actually started documenting it, uh, of which the majority is from South Africa. We've got it's like about 60% are actually from South Africa. And so this disease is, is characterized by excessive bone formation, um, and especially in skull and jaw. So, so mostly you'll find most of the symptoms is excessive or increased intracranial pressure because of that excessive bone, right? And as well as entrapment of the cranial nerve. So that's the word that leads to um, facial palsy, like paralysis, as well as hearing loss. Um, so yeah, and one of the big things is there's no treatment for it. So it's treated or managed by uh, surgery, but the surgery is quite intensive, takes quite long because of that hard, hard bone. And one nice thing about it is, is it's excessive bone, but it's really good quality bone. Uh, so it's not brittle or anything like that, um, which is why some companies were quite interested in it. <laughs> mm. um, yes, it's, a, it's yeah. an important part of the osteoporosis story, really, isn't it? Because it has yes. it led to the development of the, of the new drug rumosuzumab uh, that we have. Yeah, uh, the better I actually have a table outside. Um, so it's Romo, uh, rumosuzumab, mm -hmm. which is Avinity. Yeah. Um, that's a drug for elderly people with that's prone to fractures. Um, and that's why uh, they actually invited me over to come and do research for sclerosteosis. So they have, they developed divinity from sclerosteosis. So now they're kind of going the other way around where we're trying to find, well, we did try to find a treatment for sclerosteosis. They're actually, um, they find they're funding the RVC work that we're doing. Um, so it's just a co collaboration between the Royal Veterinary College and UCB. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating that we have patients with low bone density and we've identified a disease where people have high bone density and used that to treat low bone density and now we're going to the people who have high bone density and seeing if we can do something for them to, yeah. to bring things to, to, to normal. And yeah, you'll it's, it's, so the is, I mean, there's, there are so few patients and usually when you have a little, a small group like that, there's really very little being done. Um, I know it, 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 it seems to be turning around now, not just for sclerosis, but a whole lot of other rare diseases. Um, we've had a, quite a few rare disease talks here today, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, and a lot of it's sponsored by pharma companies. I think they realize now that they've taken quite a lot from patients. So. This is time to give it back a little. Um, yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. That's been very interesting. You're welcome. Very, very welcome. Thank you. So with us now, we have Deborah Mason from Cardiff University. Uh, I grew up in Cardiff and have a real soft spot for the university. I did my undergraduate degree in zoology there. How I ended up doing medical research, <laughs> I'll never know. Um, uh, you took part in the debate yesterday, Deborah. It was really interesting. You were up against Eugene McCloskey talking about the roles of animals in research. Did you have fun? I had a lot of fun doing it, and it was really good fun actually researching into all of the sort of arguments for and against using animal models and how good they are at replicating disease, and also how bad we are at sort of using the right model in the right situation to convert that to translation 
into clinical trials, you know. And actually, Eugene himself said that he doesn't use a lot of his patients in clinical trials because they don't match the recruitment criteria. And that is just because they're not matching the model that they're trying to address in the trial, you know, so. Which is the same problem you have with the animals in a way. Exactly. If yeah. you've got a patient who's got some comorbidity, I don't know, CKD or diabetes or something, then you might not enroll them in the osteoporosis mm. trial. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And in, in a way, the human experiments are, are guilty of the same mistakes. The thing that I took, the debate was really interesting. I thought it was really wonderful. It's the sort of thing, actually, that might have the most long-term acting effect from this conference. You know, there was a lot of young people in the audience who were hearing, hearing what you were saying about mm. uh, improving research and using the animal models better so that maybe the later trials don't fail as much. I mean, that's a really wonderful message to it, share. It's really important, actually, and I think what you have to do is to think about the heterogeneity in the human populations and then think about how you can use the models appropriately to address whatever question you're trying to address. The problem is when the model just doesn't get used appropriately, you know, the intervention time is different, the age of the animal is different, the genetic background of the animal is so different that it's really insular and, you know, the effect size is really large. And all of those things are really important if you want to sort of go out and translate properly. Um, it is about matching the model correctly and using it correctly and reporting it accurately. There's a lot of problems in reporting of animal data. And it's very difficult, actually, to report negative results. So, you know, for clinical trials that fail, hopefully they mostly get reported. Animal preclinical studies, very difficult to report those. I think they should actually have to be registered before you do them in the same way as, as, as human intervention studies. One of the things that came up briefly and again was discussed at, at another session was uh, using both male and female animals mm -hmm. because obviously osteoporosis in the clinic is predominantly a female condition. Um, but that's something may surprise people actually that it's not necessarily gendered in terms of the animals that are used. I think that's a real issue again with the field where people tend to look at the most recent papers that have shown an effect and then follow those methods rather than again thinking about what they're actually trying to do. There's no doubt that you should be doing these experiments in male and females if it's age-related osteoporosis mm -hmm. or something like, like that that you're addressing or osteoarthritis for example. You know, that should definitely be done. But it's also some, a challenge to the funders as well. You know, they need to actually fund these experiments properly. They're, they're quite expensive, even with small animals. And, you know, to do those sorts of studies, age, aged animals, really important. But again, that's very expensive to do properly. So there's a lots of challenges there to make sure that we can do these experiments much better than they're done now. Yeah. The, the one benefit you have over me is that all your animals take their medicine when you give them to them. Uh, not everyone takes the medicine when I when I give them and then follow them up. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see that might be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> but not all our animals behave the same. Surprisingly. <laughs> one thing that really surprised me about your talk, you put up a really lovely slide that showed the lifespans of different animals all the way up to tortoises. And it turns out that halibut live longer than bears. <laughs> yes, that was a good... Yeah, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, those lifespans. But also, it doesn't matter. The lifespan isn't limiting the changes because they still have the changes over their natural life course. So, for example, bone loss still happens in rodents when they get old. Yeah, it's proportional to the length of their yeah, lives. exactly, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> So, David, we're having a lovely time running around at the poster session today, and we've got two guests with us now. We've got Isabel Orris and Karen Marshall. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thanks. 
So, Isabel, uh, you're one of the first people I ever met when I started uh, doing bone research, and now you've got a really nice job at the Royal Veterinary College, and you've done so much to organise this conference and lots and lots of other bone meetings. You're kind of an institution now in your own right. How did you get into bone research? It was, well, it was one of those things where I'd finished my degree and I'd, I'd worked for a bit and I was, then started looking for a PhD because I realised that was something I wanted to do. And I don't know, I just came across this, this PhD project at University College London with uh, Tim Arnett and Jeff Bernstock that just really, really appealed to me. And I, it, was in, it was in bone research, so I kind of just almost fell into it by mistake. And I've always really enjoyed it. And I'm... I'm cell biologist and I, I like working with cells, like learning how they function and I think in bone research we, the, there's some such strong associations between fundamental research sort of translating through to drugs that actually make it to, to the clinic and um, we teach our undergraduates about some of these and I think the recent uh, the work with the sclerosteosis and romozozumab and you can go from a studying a rare genetic disease um, understanding what causes it to developing a therapy for a really common uh, disorder. So I think being able to see that translational ability wherever you are in the research field is just really nice. Romosozumab is a great story, isn't it, for that, mm. that translational medicine. We've heard a few people speak about that already today and it really is uh, It's exciting. It's something which makes a difference to my patients in the clinic, which mm. is, is great. Um, how does the Bone Research Society promote research, do you think? I think the Bone Research Society, it's just so friendly and it's so encouraging, particularly for younger people. Like, I came to my first Bone Research Society meeting as a PhD student. Um, I give my first poster presentation. I did my first oral presentation at a BRS meeting many years ago. Um, but everyone's always really supportive and the questions that you get are always really encouraging and they they're useful so they might suggest some experiments that you haven't done that would improve your work so I think it it encourages students from from when they're doing their PhDs and so they continue through and want to stay in the field and that's what we need isn't it that continue continuity the new brains the new brains <laughs> and speaking of which we have Karen hi hello is this your first BRS conference? Um, it is actually, yeah, it's my first BRS conference. So I guess I'm a bit new to science. Um, so I started out, I'm a veterinary surgeon, so then I started out in research just about three years ago as part of a large collaborative project. So I first came across the BRS, I guess, um, at one of their courses that they held at Sheffield, which is a great introduction for people who are new to the field, just to learn the sort of basics in the bone biology and to network. And yeah, so that was my first introduction to the BRS. So going from there, I um, started to join the conference and present data so yeah and what's your poster about so my poster is about um, a collaborative project the UK regenerative medicine uh, platform is uh, funding a project for scaffolds for bone tissue engineering so it's for um, like bridging the gap in you know in large fractures um, with a scaffold and encouraging the patient then to create bone on top of that scaffold to heal large fractures that wouldn't necessarily heal so it could potentially lead to um, prevention of amputations or complications with non-healing fractures um, so that's what I'm working on. Yeah.
that's an exciting area. I'm often in the osteoporosis clinic asked to help out with patients who have non-healing fractures for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And our, our armamentarium is quite limited at the moment and what we can do certainly pharmacologically. So yeah. the, the scaffolding is a very exciting area. Yeah, definitely. And it's exciting because there's lots of different developments in 3D printing and the fabrication of scaffolds and the breakdown and what materials are going to be and they've got to be compatible. So the part of our project is making sure the scaffolds are biocompatible and that the coatings and technology used on the scaffold will encourage the patient's own cells in situ to make bone rather than having to use extra lab steps of extra lab culture or any of the complications and costs associated with that. So so that's where we're at there. So we're trying to find something that will be clinically applicable and, and put that through sort of animal models and translational steps to get to clinic. So yeah. You've maybe answered this question, but I was going to ask both of you, of all the things we've heard at the meeting, a lot of the basic science things, which do you think are most likely to help my patient at the clinic in the next five years? Well, I think from my perspective, I really enjoyed the talk yesterday on osteomorphs by Michelle McDonald. Mm -hmm. So this whole recycling of osteoclasts from a a resorbing to a non-resorbing, so fission and fusion, because obviously she was doing it from the the original output of trying to find out why there is that rebound when people come off denosumab yeah. and this this potential mechanism of what's going on with these cells that we didn't know about before could be a, an explanation for why we see that massive increase in resorption again once people come off denosumab and the longer term impact on, on how you treat people or um, and what you do when you take people off denosumab and things like that, I think was really interesting. Certainly a huge day-to-day -day question at the clinic is what do you do when people come off denosumab? So yeah. we're reassured to hear there's work going on in that area. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. I think, I don't think there's maybe, I can't think of one specific thing off the top of my head to be honest, but I think it's mostly the, the meeting's been really good about trying to, it's mostly about the pathophysiology and trying to understand the mechanisms and finding new areas where we have new targets Targets. I think that's a big area um, rather than specifically on one drug that's already in clinic. It's trying to look at new avenues or new markers to block or new antibodies or things uh, to lead to drug development. And people, I guess, at this meeting discussing their clinical findings um, and finding other people have got similar outcomes and trying to problem solve together. I think that's probably the biggest thing that comes out of this meeting for, for new treatments for your for your uh, patients. And you modestly haven't mentioned your bone scaffolding. No, no, I don't know about bone scaffolding. Yeah, osteoporosis, I guess. Yeah, definitely, the bone scaffolding is, um, yeah, would be would be good, but it can be difficult, obviously, because it's so multifactorial, isn't it? You've got the age and, and the, you know, uh, menopausal impact and things, so whether you have a scaffold there, it might need a potentially different type of scaffold for different applications, really, so that's a big, a big area, a big field, so, yeah. Exciting times. Thank you mm. both very much. Okay, Thank you thanks very much. a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Bye -bye. Cheers. Bye. So we're here now with uh, Kasim Javed, who has obviously been on the podcast before talking to us about FLS. It's really nice to have you back on the show. Thank you. Uh, we were just saying how you got the, the blue mug, which you have proudly on display at home. Yes, much to my wife's annoyance. <laughs> Wait till we give you the orange one after this. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> You're not making my life any easier, are you? Uh, next time we're going to have to go for lime green, I think. <laughs> yeah. so, we just thought we'd ask you, you've been president of the BRS, how you found your tenure? Now, that's a, a good question, actually. First of all, being president of the BRS is actually a little bit misleading. It's still a team effort. So, in a way, it's just a coordinating role. because We've got such excellent members on the committee 
it's just keeping an eye out and making sure all the wheels are moving smoothly. And you know, the COVID was a huge impact, but the community really stepped up. Um, we together arranged the BRS 2021 online, the committee just took it on. And it's been an enormous privilege. Uh, I mean, if you look at the people who've been past presidents of the BRS, it's, it's a real privilege to join that, that group. I'm really excited that Kate's taking over and it's going to be, I think, a very interesting next stage as we come out of COVID and move forward. During my time on the BRS, it was all done online, which was a bit tough actually. I really enjoyed the face-to-face, -face, nearly full-day meetings we had at the RVC. Um, and I think going back to that will improve the, uh, uh, the connectivity between the committee members. But in general, being present BRS is a complete delight. Uh, great team, a wonderful community. I mean, the meeting has just shown how friendly everyone is. Loads of young researchers asking really interesting questions that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Mm. Do you think we've learned from COVID at, in, in doing way things differently in research in terms of how we communicate and how we organise things? Definitely. I think we're much more uh, web aware. We have the online symposia that run, which allow local groups to uh, present their work, uh, highlight issues. I think we've learned that communications is important and we need to be a lot more digitally savvy uh, with uh, Twitter, uh, which was always there, but really putting it up a level. Um, but Maybe I some sort of podcast? Podcast, yes. <laughs> Maybe some sort of podcast. Indeed, well, these podcasts will be going on the website. But I think it's, it's, it's finding that balance because the impact of this face-to-face -face meeting could not have been replaced by even a hundred podcasts. Mm. Mm. It really feels like family coming to this conference and uh, you do an absolutely amazing job. You're like the glue oh, that's very kind of <laughs> that you. holds everyone together. Uh, probably the, 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 the label on the glue stick and there's lots of other people. I mean, uh, the local organisation from Ilex I mean, people don't realise these are people that do their full-time research and layer on the complexity of a local meeting. It is a lot of work. Uh, Alex did it twice. You have to remember, he did it once and it was cancelled, so he has to do it twice. Um, so a lot of kudos to other people, really. And that's the beauty of being BRS president, is that you can really recognise people and really promote them. And, um, you know, we've got... Prof uh, Ali Garland coming in in two years' time. We've got Prof Ward now. It's a really good uh, uh, track record ahead. There may be younger scientists, younger doctors, younger nurses, younger radiographers listening to the podcast. What would you say to them to, uh, to, to choose bone and bone research and osteoporosis as a career as opposed to all the um, other amazing opportunities in, in science and medicine that, that are available? That's a really good question, David, and I suppose I would answer it on a personal level. It's just the friendliness and the collaborative way that we all work. I don't know what it is, but if you study bone, it's such a slow-growing <laughs> issue. There's not really a, a sort of competitive edge, it's a sort of collaborative edge. The very, people are very generous with their time, people are very generous with their expertise, primarily because there's such an unmet need and we recognize you have to work together. And actually, you think bone is solved. We come to this meeting, we leave with way more questions than we came in with. And, and these are important questions, both in common 
and rare. We had talks on joint disease with osteoarthritis. We've had muscle. We've had cancer and bone coming up in the next session. We've had you know military uh, insights. It's it just shows you that you know the cardiologists say the heart is more important, but actually if you can't walk, <laughs> you can't get to the cardiologist. That's your problem. That's right. Bone disease is so common, and yet relatively there are so few people working in the area. Isn't that right? We've talked about this before. Yeah, and that's because it fits under so many different groups. Is it the is it from the doc clinical side, you know, orthopedics, geriatrics, endocrinology, rheumatology? There is no recognised bone qualification in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, uh, and for research, we're often neglected because our tissue of interest is such a pain in the butt to get to. It's calcified, yeah. you know, it's imprisoned. It's not like you can just cut it out and then grow it on a Petri dish like a skin biopsy. It's hidden in a, in, a, in a carcass and you have to tunnel it out like an archaeologist. So that makes it challenging, but it's also, you know, very difficult to convey the importance of bone to major funding bodies. And that's what we're trying to do in, with the Royal Osteoporosis Society and the report on osteoporosis and the rare disease work we're doing with the Rare Bone Alliance. Bone is important, skeleton is important, and you know, for sure the other areas are important, but we're on that lev same level of need. And you're a fantastic advocate for yeah. that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you very Kev. much. Bye. So we're here now with Nick Evans at the BRS conference live. Nice to meet you. Hi, Richie. Hi, David. Nice to meet you. And you're from Southampton University? I am. I work at Southampton University. And you have a poster here at the conference. What's the poster about? Yeah, so we're working on um, microbubbles. So these are ultrasound contrast agents to try and deliver stuff to bone fractures. So the idea is if you have a certain types of bone fractures, non-unions, they don't heal very, very well at all. There's not really any drug that you can give that's proven to speed it up, so we really definitely need new treatments, non-invasive treatments. So we're working on these things called microbubbles, used every day in the NHS, they're used in imaging. And the idea is if you have like uh, a tumour or you've got some physiology, you know, pathology, you want to be able to see it, the microbubbles are used, injected into the bloodstream and they give contrast because they reflect sound. So it enables you to see the tissues more clearly. However, you can also stimulate them, so you can cause them to resonate. If you think about singing at a wine glass, if you pitch the note right, you can make the glass vibrate and even break, right? So the same is true of bubbles. Because they perfuse the tissues, you can pitch the ultrasound frequency to make the bubbles oscillate really, really rapidly. Wow. And they're currently in phase two, phase two and three trials for oncology, delivering stuff to tumours. So it's really promising. So basically what we want to do is try and apply that to bone, poorly healing bone practice cause them to resonate locally at the site of a fracture and speed up drug release and, and healing. So, so the idea for my patients is we could target drugs just getting to the piece of the bone that they need them, whether that's a bone that is fractured or even a piece of bone particularly affected by osteoporosis. We can use this technology or that's the idea that we can actually deliver drug to that specific piece of bone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the idea might be, you know, you have a you know, patient who's got a pathology, a fracture, yeah. it's not healing. They come into the outpatient clinic, they get a, a, an injection, peripheral injection of a formulation, and then an ultrasound device, very similar to the ones that are used clinically at the moment. Yeah. It's used to apply energy locally, 
that causes some local change yeah. and it could be drug delivery it could be causing the, the vessels to become more permeable yeah. it could be lots you know there's a, yeah. a variety of effects it could have and that ultimately will the idea is will have a positive effect on them so they go home and then they come back maybe for another appointment and we hope to prove that that kind of intervention might yeah. improve their lives and it's just ultrasound as well it's, it's really it, it's a very basic a very safe used all the time there's no ionizing radiation yet. it's not like an x-ray there's no harm comes from the sound it's just like it's like you know like a bat makes a high-pitched frequency it yeah. doesn't cause you any damage so this is this is very exciting when are you going to deliver it to my clinic in northern ireland then <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, like like a lot of things that quite so yeah. so, yeah, so yeah. at the moment we're at the stage where we just because they're not used in bone fracture we just want to find out whether we can see them in bone fracture mm -hmm. to start with that's not really it's only people have started to research that relatively recently so in the current study we haven't published it yet but we've definitely shown you get good perfusion uh, at least in acute fracture so that gives us you know, it gives us confidence to mm -hmm. keep going we've, in parallel we're doing some uh, preclinical work in mice we're making fractures in in mouse models and we, we, we can actually show there that we can play them so we can hear the harmonics you know like a guitar string you've got these mm -hmm. overtones you can hear them in the, in, in, in the mouse so that gives us confidence that we can actually stimulate them. Yeah. So at the moment, we're doing studies to see whether we can promote release and uptake. So vessel permeability, accumulation of compounds, mainly dyes. So we're at an early stage. So the, in answer to your question, yeah. <laughs> some years. Great. It's so exciting to hear about this translational research at the conference. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to us. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, David and Richie. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for explaining that so well. Next on Bone Up, we have Annie Constable from Exeter University. Welcome to Bone Up. Thank you. We saw your talk today about physical activity in childhood, and you have a poster presentation at the conference. I wondered if you could just give us a brief outline. Yeah, so with my research, I've been looking at ways that we can use accelerometer measured physical activity to better understand the relationships between physical activity and bone in childhood. And we know that physical activity and bone in childhood is an important determinant of lifelong skeletal health. So actually this initial primary prevention in childhood is important in determining their risk of osteoporosis across the lifespan. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of adults I see, we, we identify that it, it's, it's uh, a lot of the things that contribute to osteoporosis start in childhood and start in adolescence. From this, do you see that it will encourage children to, to be more active? Yeah, I hope so. So I think one of the things at the moment is that our physical activity guidelines are very much based on data related to BMI and cardiometabolic health. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a very good understanding to give that level of detail in regards to musculoskeletal health. So um, the guidelines at the moment for children are 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity per day. Um, the WHO recommends that children do muscle and bone strengthening activity three times a week, but that frequency was recently removed from our UK guidelines because there wasn't evidence to support that frequency. So I think the first step is to have a better understanding of what that physical activity looks like to promote bone health. And then once we understand that, it's then encouraging children to be active. Everyone has activity monitors in their phones and so on now. How good are those as compared with the accelerometers that you're using in your study? Yeah, so the accelerometers that we use are combined. Um, so in the study that I've done, it's combined heart rate and movement sensor data. So the heart rate is measured on the chest. So we're getting a really good signal for the heart rate measurement. Mm -hmm. And acceleration is measured at the trunk. So 
when we're measuring at the trunk, we're getting quite a good measure of the impact that's going through the body. So it is dampened, but overall, we're getting an idea of their mechanical loading. Um, there has been research looking at, can we use Fitbit or can we use Garmin or Apple Watch to characterize physical activity? It's still in its really early stages, I think, for these to actually be considered research grade, but it would be really interesting to look at going forwards, whether, like you say, so many people have these devices, whether we can utilize that to collect more data. The research grade accelerometers are very expensive. And we've talked a lot about collaboration here. You, you did this work with colleagues outside the UK? Yeah, so I've been collaborating with University of Eastern Finland. I was quite lucky that while I was doing my master's, um, there was a visiting professor from Finland and he was involved in the panic study and collecting data for the panic study, which is the physical activity and nutrition in children study based in Eastern Finland. Um, and I got talking to him and I was interested in looking at physical activity and bone health and doing a PhD. And from there, we put together this application to do the PhD in collaboration between Exeter and Finland, working with their data set. So I was quite lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Did, uh, did, did the kids lose or damage any of your accelerometers? I expect so. <laughs> <laughs> we tend to find we don't get all of them back. <laughs> but they do, which is quite nice. They let the kids customize them with like stickers, so they become yeah. like superhero belts, which is really nice. Really good, yeah. yeah. Lovely. Look, thanks for taking the time to speak to us. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. It's been Thank great you. to talk to you. Thank you. We have with us now Millie Pierce from the University of Southampton and you've been telling us about a really interesting research network which you're running? Yeah, so UK Rhyme, so it's a collaboration of uh, musculoskeletal research centres from across the UK with a particular focus on um, supporting PhD students and ECRs to develop those really important networks, particularly within the musculoskeletal um, research field. It's um, funded by Versus Arthritis with the University of Manchester um, holding the, the grant and they give us some amazing support. Every year we're able to run a two-day showcase um, where we're able to invite ECRs, PhD students um, to give those first really important presentations, those first 10 minute slots, that bit of networking which particularly with COVID we haven't been able to, to do. This is a really important uh, uh, job that you're doing, facilitating young scientists, blooding young scientists with their first talk. It's so nerve-wracking the first time you give a talk at a conference, and you need to be in a friendly and supportive environment. It's one of the things we've been talking about, trying to attract younger career people into Boone, whether it's clinical, whether it's research, and, and this is it's certainly something which provides a framework for that. It's brilliant and it's so friendly. Um, the invited speakers um, are often mid-level as well, talking about how they've got to where they are. So it's not always this aspirational, that's the prof I want to mm -hmm. be. They're real life people that they can follow through that, that pathway um, to begin to follow them. Last year's showcase we were able to hold despite COVID and some of those PhD students, it was the first time they'd even met others from their institutions because they'd all been locked down while starting those, those mm. studies. Honestly, I think having the middle career researchers is probably better than the professors 
I've been talking to a few at this conference, the, the system that they grew up in is completely different to the system we have now, and probably the middle career researchers might be able to give them more insight and better advice, in all honesty. I think that's what we're aiming for, is realistic, and um, people that they feel they can talk to. So many of those profs are just amazing, but the idea of going to network and going to speak to them at your first conference is just terrifying. So it's really to foster those early networks, those early um, collaborations that hopefully you can take with you through your career. Yeah, I remember being a young PhD student trying to track down profs at a conference. It was a really nerve-wracking experience. That's great. Thank you very much for taking no the time worries. to speak to us. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So we're delighted to speak to uh, another uh, attendee at the conference, Sarah Allison from, uh, from Teesside. So tell us a, a little about yourself, Sarah, and, and what you're doing here. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Sarah Allison. I'm, a, um, I'm on the committee for the Vaughan Research Society. So I've been on the committee for three years. Um, and today is actually my final day, so my term ends on the committee. Um, so it's been a real honour and a real privilege to serve for the Bourne Research Society for, for, for the past three years. So I've been responsible for helping behind the scenes, in the background, um, getting the conference together and uh, making sure it's run smoothly. And what do you do day to day then when you're day not here? Day to day I'm a senior lecturer in physiology and my research specifically interested in um, osteoporosis and I've been researching in this area probably since 2009 when I started my PhD. And what are you working on at the minute? What am I working on at the minute? Um, so I'm looking at, at the moment in my institution, we're looking at the acute response um, of, of bone tissue to different types of exercise. So we want to eventually look at training programs, um, particularly around treatment of hip fracture patients. So focusing more on the rehabilitation area. Um, but at the moment, we're, do, we're running a few acute response studies to try and look at some mechanisms behind some novel type of interventions um, to see that response before we progress on to looking at more of a um, randomised control trial. So a lot of our listeners will have osteoporosis or know somebody who has osteoporosis. I think they'd be really interested to see the results that come out of that study. What kind of interventions do you think you might develop? So at the well, the, the, the ones that we've done in the past previously have been um, exercise type interventions, so more focused on the lifestyle interventions. So we've looked at exercise that you can integrate into your um, daily living activities. So exercise that could be performed at home, for instance, and performed for a few minutes a day. So we've just looked at, yeah, type of exercises that we can do. I think people would like that. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Professor Celia Gregston and Kate Ward, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule here at, at the BRS to talk to us. Um, we know you both, I think, from the podcast uh, talking to Kate earlier about your work in sub-Saharan Africa and osteoporosis in sub-Saharan Africa, but you both do other very important things as well. Do you want to say just a little about the other things that you're doing? I wonder, Celia, if you tell us about your role in NOG. Um, yeah, so I, I took over the chair of um, the National Osteoporosis Guideline Group um, in January 2020 from Juliet Constant. Um, and then uh, in, in uh, the middle of 2020, we started a process of uh, rewriting, um, heavily revising the, the NOG guidance. Um, 
with a view to getting that reaccredited by NICE towards the end of um, 2022. And um, we had a great group of people, um, very interactive, um, and iteratively we gradually rewrote um, the NOG guidance and uh, it really summarises the evidence base um, behind treatment of osteoporosis and uh, reduction of fracture risk, um, particularly appropriate for management of patients within the NHS. And um, as well as producing a new revised guideline, we've got another of a number of other resources which are relatively new now. We, a, we have a new website specifically designed for the purpose. Um, and we also include a number of frequently asked questions. A lot of those pitched particularly at primary care um, uh, sort of readership. Um, and we have a patient information uh, leaflet that has been developed with our patient partners who have also been an integral part of the development of the guideline all the way through the process. Um, so yeah, a lot of resources on that NOG web website um, which are worth looking at. And being aware of our listeners, there has been a perception maybe in the past that NOG guidance was aimed at specialists, but this is very much aimed at primary care for patients to read and really right across the osteoporosis community. Yeah, very much agree with that. I mean, the bulk of fractures are, are seen and managed by primary care physicians. And um, there are primary care physicians within the NOG writing team. And uh, so it's, it's very much aimed at recommendations that can be implemented in primary care. And in fact, actually, if you look in the, um, the latter sections of the guidance itself, there is a, um, a number of recommendations made by which a primary care practice can see how it's doing in terms of some standards specifically designed by GPs for GPs. Um, so yeah, really, really important that um, we get good engagement with primary care and it was very much written with that intention. Great, so if you're a primary care practitioner listening to this, please do go and have a look at the, at the NOG website. Please do, yeah. And Kate, you've uh, taken over the Bone Research Society in a bloodless revolution. <laughs> Uh, how, how does it feel to be uh, uh, the new president of the Bone Research Society? Well, it's an absolute honour. Um, it's an exciting time. Um, there's lots of opportunities in terms of the society. Um, I, I started coming to the society as a new investigator back in 2000 or 2001. Um, and it's always been dear to my heart. It brings together a lot of my research because it brings basic and clinical researchers together. And I think that's always key to good collaboration and good research. And so, yeah, I'm delighted to be president. I've got, we've got an exciting meeting next year with the ECTS in Liverpool. And then in 2024, the location to be announced. But I think for the committee, there's opportunities now to build on everything we've learned about COVID um, in terms of working and hybrid meetings, but also how do we take the society forward and what do the members want in terms of communications, all of our opportunities for early and mid-career researchers. So I'm really looking forward to taking the helm. It's really exciting times. When you look at, when you look at the list of people who've <laughs> been president of the society, it's like the who's who of who's great in bone. It's a really prestigious society. How did you first get involved with the BRS? So I was first involved as, a, as an early career investigator. My, um, my PIs brought me along and I presented. I think I won an oral poster award in something like, yeah, 2001. Um, and so it was my first introduction into scientific conferences. And then I became, I you know, progressed through my career and then I got the opportunity to join the committee as an ordinary member 
and so served for three years then and then helped um, develop the website and redevelop the website and then took on the secretary role for a further three years um, and did that to varying degrees of success um, and I think that's why you find me here now. I organised the Winchester meeting in 2018 um, and because mentorship and capacity building is really dear to my heart and part of what I'd like to make as you know my career about, I think the BRS has all of that at its heart and so I was delighted. I didn't expect to be asked to be president at this stage of my career but it's absolutely wonderful to take over from Cassine who was fantastic and before that Jim Gallagher so yeah I'm delighted to be here for all the members. While this is the UK Bone Research Society we've seen from the work presented over the last few days there's a real international flavour to things and the amazing work that you've both done in, in, in Africa looking at osteoporosis is that international collaboration something which is, is part of the future do you think? I absolutely do, yes. I think over the past few years we've been able to introduce our own PhD students but also of course through our invited speakers, um, exchange programmes with ECTS, um, with AS ASBMR as well and now with the Australian New Zealand Bone Mineral Society um, exchange collaboration as well bringing over and encouraging exchange of researchers and giving opportunities, I think, gives that international flavour. And it's, it's very much something that I'd like to see at the core of the society going forwards and to build, build as well. Brilliant. Thank you both very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Lovely. Thank you. We're, we're joined now by a medical student. Uh, would you like to just introduce yourself and, and tell us what you've been presenting on today? Yes, yeah. so my name is Sophie Heftenstall and I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of Bristol. Um, during my intercalated year I undertook a BSc in clinical sciences and as part of that I got to pick a project which I chose to do with the academic rheumatology group at Southmead. And my project has involved looking at the association between hip geometry and hip osteoarthritis. And what did you find? So we, found, we looked at various geometric parameters on high-resolution DEXA scans using UK Biobank, which is a large prospective cohort study um, uh, where we used 40,000 DEXA scans. And we used machine learning algorithms to sort of derive the scans, um, derive the geometric parameters from these scans. And we found that narrowest neck width held the strongest association with hip osteoarthritis. Wow. What do you think the mechanism might be? Gosh, that's a tricky question. Um, so, I mean, as this is an observational study, we can't draw, draw any causal inferences, but it may be to do with a bone remodeling, uh, which occurs with age, um, potentially, yeah. We've been hearing a lot about imaging and how the shape of the bone might affect not just osteoarthritis, but osteoporosis and fracture and, uh, and all sorts of things that we see in the clinic. So it's a very interesting area to be involved with. Yeah, no, it's been really exciting and I've had some great support from the team at Bristol. And how have you found the BRS conference? Um, so this is my first day here and everyone's been really friendly and I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed posting my, uh, pitching my project um, in the 90 second slot. I thought it was quite fast paced. That's great. Well, you did very well indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we're at the poster session at the BRS conference and we're here with Professor Tonya Vincent from Oxford University. Welcome to Bone Up Live. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed watching your talk yesterday about osteoarthritis. I work in an orthopaedic unit at Imperial College and you were telling the audience about potential treatments for osteoarthritis. Do you think we have one on the horizon? 
I think we have all sorts of potential treatments on the horizon. I don't think they're quite ready to go into the clinics just yet. But we've certainly got some more promising things coming through phase two studies, and we're certainly understanding pathogenesis of disease better than we ever understood it before. And those successful treatments that coming through the phase two studies really do align well with what we know about pathogenesis. They're a good deal better than some of the things that have been tested in the past that have failed. And how do these potential new treatments perhaps tackle the development of the disease? Well, one of the very interesting things that has emerged through the research in osteoarthritis is this understanding that osteoarthritis may be largely driven by a failure to repair the cartilage rather than by its promotion of degradative pathways per se. And so some of the newer treatments that we're seeing coming onto the market are actually testing whether you can stimulate that intrinsic repair of the articular cartilage. And I think that is a, a complete turnaround from where we were, say, 10 years ago. Mm. I see patients at the clinic who often say to me, what's coming up next? Doctor, you know, what's on the horizon? Are there new drugs for my condition? Supplies to osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, lots of conditions. What's the biggest barrier, do you think, to translating all the molecular targets you identify into drugs that I can give to the patient at the clinic in five years' time? Well, I think the biggest problem at the moment is that for a fair while, you know, the drug companies were rather hoping they could repurpose drugs that already existed. And it turns out, you know, no surprise that osteoarthritis is a different disease. We know it's different. You just have to look at our patient population. And so what's, I think when you're asking about the biggest hurdle, you're really talking about having to create new products, new drugs, and that costs pharmaceutical companies huge amounts of money and takes much longer because they have to go through safety and they have to do all those things. So if one is, is really optimistic, what one would hope for is that there'll be some treatments out there that perhaps are used in other conditions outside the rheumatological field, but nonetheless might be repurposed for trying to target some of these newer pathways that we have identified in osteoarthritis. Um, failing that, I think we have to sort of, you know, wait for those more ambitious pharmaceutical companies to get on with their new drugs. And there are quite a few of them in trial at the moment. I mean, Novartis have got a number of agents that are pro-anabolic. They don't say what they are specifically, but they're peptides and proteins that they're injecting into the knee and looking for regeneration of the articular cartilage. So I think there are things on the horizon. It may take a little while uh, to get through to patients in the clinic, um, although there may be opportunities to participate in clinical trials relatively soon, and I think that might be quite a good option for patients who need treatment now. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that almost wraps things up for uh, the Bone Research Society meeting here in Manchester. Uh, we hope this has been enjoyable. It's been certainly a slightly different sort of podcast this time. It has, isn't it? I've really enjoyed talking to everybody at the conference, especially getting everybody's um, little interviews about their research, trying to get an update on everything that's going on. And I think my takeaway from this conference is there's a lot of really interesting research going on. The quality of research from the PhD students is absolutely outstanding and makes me feel like in the years to come, some of this research is going to go on and really, really benefit patients and the community, which is absolutely wonderful. 
Yeah, it's exciting to see new stuff. It's quite early on. It won't be in the clinic for a few years yet, but people are looking at new molecules. They're looking at osteoporosis in a different way. They're looking at bone diseases in a different way. And it's so exciting, as you say, to see people from from medical students and, and science students right through to senior internationally known professors all here together, all talking about bones. And we hope we've given you a little flavour of what it's been like here at the conference. So we'll see you all in the next episode and hopefully be back for Bone Up Live at BRS 2023. <laughs> Bye now.